Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Greetings and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program. I'm Jeff. With me today is Brian, your regular co-host. And today we're going to talk about some topics that a lot of people consider to be somewhat uh, scary related to various supernatural forces. Uh, in essence, we want to talk about demons, spirits, demon possession, uh, Satan, what happens to people after they die, ghosts, uh, etc. Um, yeah, there's certainly, Brian seems to be a lot of ongoing fascination, I would say. Uh, with what we might call the supernatural, uh, to include like Satan, demonic activity, ghosts contacting the dead uh, in the afterlife. Uh, you know, certainly there are a few groups uh, like uh, Catholics and Pentecostals that claim modern day demonic possession. And of course, you know, our listeners may be familiar with, you know, movies and TV shows that promote the concept of ghosts or haunted houses, or spirit mediums contacting the dead. But, you know, today, Brian, we want to kind of lay aside what Hollywood might be showing or what different religious groups might be claiming uh, to see what the scriptures uh, have to say about these things. And we'll get into more of that in just a few moments, but I guess I should say good morning, Brian. <laughs> How are you doing this morning? Hey, doing well. Yeah, you're right. There, There is an ongoing fascination with these things and a lot of claims that people make and so forth. And of course, you know, being a Bible-based program, let's just see what the Bible says, as you mentioned. Exactly. So, you know, when we get started in, in a moment or so, uh, we certainly do want to go into the scriptures and we'll, you'll, as our listeners will see in a few moments, you know, Satan, demons, you know, the spirits of the dead, you know, these are all real. I mean, they may exist in a another realm, if I could use that term, you know, the supernatural realm, but they are real. Uh, but the real question I think that we want to focus on today for our listeners is what kind of interactions, you know, these entities have with the living today. You know, sort of bridging the gap between our, our physical world and the supernatural world. Uh, you know, what kind of interactions can we expect based on what God's Word has to say? So that'll be the focus of today's podcast. I think, Brian, you're going to lead us off with what, as I said, some people might consider to be a very, uh, very scary kind of topic. Yeah, definitely. When we talk about demons or demonic possession, things like exorcisms, yeah, demons, uh, you know, especially as you alluded to, when you look at how Hollywood and others frame demons, it makes it very scary. Now, in all fairness, as we read the Bible, yeah, there are some things we see demons doing that are, that were also, yeah, pretty scary. So anyhow, you know, there are many references to demons in the Bible, about 80, based on a search that I did in the New Testament alone. But while the Bible has a lot to say about demons as it relates to them possessing people and so forth, there's relatively little information about their origin, actually nothing about their origin, very little about their nature or characteristics. And so we kind of have to piece together passages throughout the scriptures to see what we can conclude without 
jumping to conclusions, if you will. So, you know, when you think about our modern culture and really since the first century, there have been numerous theories about demons. And so we have to understand that they were just theories. So for instance, you could go back to the first century and read about some of the theories the Jews had about demons, some of which were true or were substantiated and others were were proven to be false. And so, you know, I just emphasize the fact that, you know, there can be many theories, but unless it can be supported by fact, like any other subject, we need to be very careful. Now, in the book of Enoch, which is a Jewish book that's not part of what we call the canon, the Bible that we have today, you know, they believe, or it states in that book, that demons are said to be fallen angels. That, that's a really common belief. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian during the first century, asserted that demons were spirits of the wicked dead. And we don't see anything in the Bible about that as far as proving that. Now, there are no references in the Old Testament to people being possessed by a demon. Now, we do have a few instances, for instance, how God, we're told that God sent a distressing spirit upon King Saul after the spirit of the Lord departed from him. So for those of you that remember the story over in 1 Samuel, he was given the instructions by God to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites. He did not do that. He spared the king. He spared some of their animals and so forth. And as a result, the spirit of the Lord, we're told, departed from him. He was removed as king. David was selected to be king in his place. And we're told God sent a distressing spirit. Now, there are also several references to activity attributed to demons, such as, you know, forbidden sacrifices. So, you know, in the Old Testament, people, unfortunately, were offering their children uh, of uh, sacrifices to Molech, for instance, uh, unclean animals and so forth. And so that was considered something that was, you know, attributed to demons. And so, you know, um, this idolatry is directly linked a lot in the Old Testament to, once again, demons. Now, demons are spiritual beings. And so we see terms like evil spirit or deceitful spirits. Or in the New Testament especially, you see a lot of references to unclean spirits. And so unclean spirits, if you were to look at that Greek word, just means impure or foul. So certainly opposite of what God is and what God's nature is and so forth. Often associated with Satan, for instance, in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 26. Demons were able to possess people. And that's probably something that everybody knows just from reading the scriptures. And, you know, many references to that in the New Testament. And when you look at the different ways that demons affected people, they made people mute, you know, unable to speak, Mark 9, 17, deaf, Mark 9, 25, blind, Matthew 12, 22. They could cause convulsions, Mark 1, 26. They could even cause great strength, Mark chapter 5, verse 4, and even exhibit self-destructive behavior, Matthew 17, verse 15, where you had somebody who was throwing themselves in the fire and water and so forth. Now, some people had multiple demons, such as Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons, we're told, in Mark chapter 16 and verse 9. That's talk about scary. Can you imagine? The demons also were able to speak and even confirmed who Jesus was. And I find, Jeff, this is one of the more fascinating parts about demons, how they actually confirmed not just Jesus, but like Paul and others were from God. So one example is over in Mark chapter 1. You want to read that for us, Jeff? Uh, Mark chapter 1. Let's look at 23 and 24 and see what it says here. Certainly. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit 
And he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Yeah, as you said, very, very fascinating that they were, you know, somehow able to recognize Jesus for who he really claimed to be. That's right. And as we, our listeners may know, there are other instances where, you know, demons spoke and asked Jesus not to punish or torment them, quote unquote, before the time, right? Or, hey, don't cast us out into the abyss, which is a bottomless pit. And so we get these little tidbits. We're like, oh, wow, that's kind of interesting. You know, and if you go look at Revelation, that talks about the Satan being thrown in the bottomless pit. So anyhow, uh, no doubt associated with Satan, recognized deity and confirmed who Jesus was. Now, Jesus and the disciples that he gave power to could cast out demons. So one example is in Luke chapter 10 and verse 17, where Jesus had sent out a group of disciples, and then after that he sent out another 70, and gave them once again the power to cast out demons. And they came back and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So they were really impressed and excited about that. Well, the Lord had given them that ability, and it really confirmed that they were from God, and that power was from Jesus. Now, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about, do demons still possess people today? Now, the Bible seems to indicate that demon possession was only for a limited period of time. Now, we know that miracles were only performed until the truth was fully revealed to mankind, and you can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. So the power to cast out demons was a miraculous work, right? Not something that any normal human being should be able to do uh, and, until Jesus gave them the power to do that. And when Jesus did that, it illustrated not only he, but once again, those who he gave the power to had power over Satan. And so we can see, well, this is a miraculous work, a spiritual gift, you might say. And if spiritual gifts ceased, then so would the ability to cast out demons. Well, now, if you lost the ability to cast out demons, would it make sense to still people possessed with all kinds of demons that they could do nothing about it? So just something to think about. Now, there's a lengthy reading. I'm not going to go through all of it, but for those of you listening, if you want to make a note of Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 30, read through that. It talks about somebody who was brought to Jesus that was blind and mute. And, you know, all the multitudes after Jesus cast out that demon, were amazed, you know, could this be the son of David? Like, how, how can he do this? Now, the Pharisees in verse 24 accused Jesus of doing this by the power of Beelzebub, who's associated with Satan, the ruler of demons. And verse 25 says, you know, Jesus knew their thoughts. And notice what he says in 25, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judgments. And he goes on to say in verse 28, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, you, you can't enter a strong man's house and plunder him unless you first bind the strong man. Well, Jesus bound Satan, no doubt about it. And it was foolish to think that he was casting out demons by Satan. He wasn't aligned with Satan. Satan was the opposite of God and Jesus. Now, in Colossians chapter 2.15, speaking about Jesus, it said that he had disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, 
triumphing over them in it. So just another passage to illustrate, not only did he make a public spectacle of them, but he had disarmed those principalities and powers. So it also lends itself to saying he did what he wanted to accomplish, what God wanted him to accomplish. And this was just like the other miracles that he performed where it served a purpose for a period of time that to confirm he was the son of God, to confirm he had the power over Satan. And then once that period went by, well, it was no longer necessary. So a couple other thoughts here. You know, once spiritual gifts ceased, we have to assume that, the, as I just mentioned, you know, the ability to cast out demons ceased. There was no need to have that any longer. Now, in John chapter 9, Jeff, if I get you to read this passage, verses 1 through 3, it also kind of talks about one of the purposes of miracles. Gotcha. Uh, John chapter 9. Okay. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Yeah, so this kind of, Jeff, seems like it's aligning, right, with the purpose of all other miracles. It showed that God had power, not just over Satan, but power to heal people and therefore confirm, once again, that this was all being done through Jesus. Right, and and to your point, which I like, it it's like there were a number of you know miracle working abilities you know given to people in the early church, you know, first century, you know, not the least of which was the ability to reveal God's word and write it down, which eventually culminated in the Bible, New Testament, but you know, speaking in foreign languages that you didn't have to learn, you know, discerning the difference between spirits. And of course, you can you know, realize or see more of that in First Corinthians chapter uh, 12, you know, various gifts, prophesying, you know, inspired prophesying, as well as, as you mentioned earlier, casting out, you know, uh, demons or quote unquote evil spirits. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's after all that passed, as we talked about in First Corinthians 13, that, you know, it passed because the faith had been fully revealed. So now we believe by faith. We don't need to see miracles because we can read about them in the fully revealed Word of God. So, for instance, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So now today, all of us either accept or reject the Lord, but if we accept who He is, we accept Him by faith. And one final passage here, Zechariah 13, verses 1 and 2, it says, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. It shall be in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to depart from the land. Now, if you continue to read on in Zechariah 13, it, it's a messianic chapter because it talks about Jesus and how the followers of the shepherd would be struck and they would scatter and all of that. Well, that's exactly what happened when Jesus was arrested. So it's this whole chapter is a messianic chapter. And, you know, it's talking about when Jesus came, the gospels fully revealed, as we discussed, the prophets and the unclean spirit would depart from the land. It was no longer necessary. So anyhow, just some evidence, I think, that kind of shows, you know, hey, this is why we can say that there are no longer demons today. Jeff, any other thoughts before we jump into exorcism? 
Um, you know, just one small one. You know, at the very beginning of the program, I noted that, you know, notably, uh, I believe the Catholic Church, as well as Pentecostals, you know, claim modern day demonic possession, which I, I think in, in some ways is at least consistent with their claim that, you know, miracles continue today. And, and I like the point that you made that it's almost like the miracle working and the supernatural, like demon possession, uh, I don't want to say miracle, but anyway, you know, those things kind of go together, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. You know, why allow Satan to or have demons, you know, take over a person against their will if you don't have the ability of doing something about it? So it's almost like those things travel together. And so for at least the Catholics and the Pentecostals, well, they claim ongoing miraculous gifts to include ongoing revelation from God, speaking in tongues to some degree, demonic possession. So, yeah, interesting how those uh, the, the two kind of travel together, so to speak. Yeah, definitely go hand in hand. And that's why, to your point, that we continue to see those who claim to practice exorcism today in the Catholic Church. And so, you know, when we look at the behavior of people today in our world, we know that there are people, for instance, that may have some kind of mental illness, maybe they're un- under the influence of drugs or alcohol, and certainly their behavior may lead us to conclude, wow, they're, they're like possessed with a demon or, you know, somebody that commits, let's say, a mass murder or something like that. And once again, some kind of mental illness. Well, all too often we, all of us could be, you know, want to attribute that to, hey, they're, they're possessed by the a demon. Well, you know, as I mentioned, the Catholic Church, you know, believe that people are still possessed with demons and therefore they claim to be able to exercise them. Now, and there's a gentleman by the name of Dr. Butler who put together a catechism for the Catholic Church, which ended up being widely adopted in the 1700s in Ireland and the U.S. and in Canada. And within that catechism, he was asked some questions about exorcisms. I'm just going to read a couple of his questions and what his answers were. So they first asked, what do you mean by exorcism? He says, the rites and prayers instituted by the church for the casting out devils or restraining them from hurting persons, disquieting places, or abusing any of God's creatures to our harm. Next question, has Christ given his church any such power over devils? His answer was, yes, he has. See Matthew 10, verse 1, Mark chapter 3, verse 15, Luke chapter 9, verse 1, and that this power was not to die with the apostles, nor to cease after the apostolic age, we learn from the perpetual practice of the church and the experience of all ages. So he's saying, of course, the church, that power didn't end, you know, after the apostles left the earth, but that it's continued in the church until this day. Well, it's not possible that this gift could have been passed on to men today, as first off, for them to be able to cast out demons, they had to have received that from Jesus, as we talked about earlier, or through the laying on of the apostles' hands to receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we see that in Acts chapter 8, verse 18, for instance. And of course, the apostles have been dead for almost 2,000 years. As we touched on earlier also, 1 Corinthians 13, spiritual gifts have ceased. They no longer serve the same purpose. So anyhow, can't say that that, in fact, uh, that, that the church can continue to do this today. Now, in Acts chapter 19, we actually see where the Jews were attempting to practice exorcism of the name of Jesus, and it was apparent that they did not have this power. So, Jeff, if I can get you to read one more <laughs> passage here, I appreciate you reading these. 
Uh, Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. Kind of a fascinating section of Scripture. All right, so beginning with verse 11 of Acts 19. Now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, and Brian, this is fascinating. Yeah. Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? <laughs> then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them and overpowered them and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the, Lord, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Yeah, fascinating account there, Brian. It really is, and we learn so much from this section of Scripture. So first and foremost, not anyone who said that, you know, by the name of Lord Je the Lord Jesus, you know, that we exercise, verse 13, you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, you know. And so it showed that if they did not or were not given the ability to cast out demons, then it would not have been something they could have done simply by invoking Jesus's name. And like you said, Jeff, it's fascinating that the evil spirit's like, well, I know Paul, right? I, because, you know, once again, he was from God, had been given that uh, spiritual gift to be able to cast out demons, but I don't know who you are, and therefore he attacked them and, and overpowered them. Also, the people's reaction when they saw this like those who were performing magic, when they saw that, you know, what was true was that, you know, Paul had the ability to literally cast out these demons, and there's no level of magic or deception that they could perform uh, to do the same thing. They just were like, okay, we need to, we need to get rid of all these false, you know, things that we rely on that deceive people, and we just need to burn them and get rid of them. So anyhow, just a wonderful example of also going back to this idea of exorcism, how it cannot possibly be practiced today because no one has that power. And as we said earlier, there's no one really possessed with demons, so they're, what they would be doing would be for show. It couldn't possibly be true that they could do that. So anyhow, Jeff, kind of a lengthy section there, but a lot to the Bible teaches us about, once again, demons, evil spirits, those kinds of things. All right. Well, and you know, I appreciate your commenting that some people, quote unquote, act like they're demon possessed. I mean, you know, there, there are certainly a, a large number of different, I'll call them psychological things that people get into, as well as drugs, uh, mental illnesses, uh, schizophrenia, they're talking to themselves, uh, etc. That may, may make some people think you know, that the way they're acting. Um, is due to demonic possession, but at least in terms of the New Testament, and especially 1 Corinthians 13, which I would encourage our listeners to you know go back and read, particularly the uh, the basically the second half, 
of uh, 1 Corinthians 13. You know, these kind of miraculous manifestations had a you know particular purpose, particular time period, temporary, and in some ways were there to sort of strengthen the early church and get them sort of up on their feet, so to speak, to the point where they were, I don't know if I want to say self-sustaining without the miraculous uh, things that Paul refers to as childish things. And when you grow up, you put away childish things. So just thought I'd throw that out there as well. Brian, any other comments before we move on to the next topic? Uh, nope. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Satan. I mean, as we've seen so far, based on 1 Corinthians 13, that, you know, demons, you know, cannot today, you know, take over our bodies, uh, override our free will, you know, possess us as they did in Bible times and cause us to, you know, you know, all kinds of, you know, physical manifestations, right? But some people might say, okay, fine. Yeah, demons can't do that, but maybe Satan can. Maybe Satan directly can do that. Either in terms of physically possessing us, like with demons, or maybe in some ways he can directly harm us physically, cause things to happen to us. Um, you know, some people might even think that, that Satan can, you know, read our minds and put thoughts directly into our head. Uh, so again, there, there's a lot of, um, you know, concern out there about what Satan perhaps can do to us. So let's kind of focus then on Satan, uh, setting, you know, demons aside. First of all, uh, if you're acquainted at all with the scriptures, uh, Satan is real. I mean, he is not a, not a myth. He's not a concept. Uh, he is not some impersonal force. You know, he is a real entity. Um, in fact, as you go through the scriptures, there's a lot of terms used to describe him. Uh, I don't know if I want to call them names. I don't know if I want to call them titles, but, but they certainly are very descriptive. Uh, uh, devil, you know, that, that appears in a lot of different uh, passages and translations. Accuser, Revelation 12, 10. Adversary, 1 Peter 5, 8. The wicked one, Matthew 13, 19. Uh, the great dragon, the serpent of old, Revelation 12, 9. Beelzebub, uh, Matthew 12, verse 24, and Luke eleven eighteen, And an interesting one, prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2. Uh, and as Brian mentioned earlier, sort of the origin of demons, uh, not really clearly revealed. Uh, origin of Satan, kind of similarly. And I think it's, you know, it may be relatively commonly accepted that, you know, Satan was an angel, you know, fallen angel, one who decided to sin, rebel against God, etc. And there are some scriptures in, in the Bible that kind of hint in that direction. Uh, but in terms of uh, explicit, overt, you know, Satan's origin story, yeah, not really clearly revealed. Uh, obviously, a, a great force for uh, evil has been around for thousands and thousands of years. <laughs> so certainly, as we'll kind of get into, a force to be reckoned with. But the question is how. So like Brian did, you know, go back to going when he went back to the Old Testament, we see Satan active uh, in Old Testament times, beginning potentially in the book of Genesis, uh, chapter three, interaction with Eve. 
Now, I say potentially. Uh, basically, Genesis 3 describes a, an interaction between Eve and a serpent. And some scholars see in that serpent and in later references, like I mentioned in Revelation 12, 9, to uh, Satan being the serpent of old, as you know, Satan working through a serpent or, or somehow in the, in the form of a serpent, hard to tell. Uh, so that may be a first interaction, but assuming it is, even assuming it is, notice that it's a conversation, Genesis chapter 3, that the uh, proposition, if you will, is given to Eve and her free will, in that case, is still respected, even by the serpent, or if, again, if we're assuming that it's Satan, uh, that Satan is um, uh, respecting her ability to choose between right and wrong. He's tempting her, but he's not forcing her. And that's an important part, as we'll, we'll kind of mention further on. Uh, probably one of the more uh, fascinating interactions is in the book of Job, where the first two chapters records some fascinating interaction between Satan and God, uh, some accusations that Satan makes against God, and kind of indirectly, or uh, uh, accusations against Job, excuse me, and indirectly against God himself. We see Satan uh, allowed to have some interaction, if you will, with Job, uh, as we'll see in just a moment. So, uh, Brian, if you would please take us over to Job chapter 1. Verses 8 through 11. Okay, here it says, beginning in verse 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand, and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And for those of our listeners, if you continue reading in the first chapter, with very horrific results. Um, I mean, just off the top of my head, I didn't really write it down, but through somehow, somehow through raiding tribes, through, um, you know, atmospheric changes, you know, Job loses all of his herds, all of his flocks, etc. And through some kind of like a windstorm that causes, uh, I guess the, the tent that his children were in at the time to collapse. Kills all of his kids. All of them. So one fell swoop, you know, Job has lost all of his wealth, money, in our terminology, you know, lost his 401k, his retirement plan, all his investments, etc. And, other than his wife, lost his entire family. Uh, which kind of gives us some, I think, insight into what Satan could do <laughs> if he was not restrained by God. And yet, within the story, despite all these terrible things, Job remained faithful. In, in essence, Satan's accusation, as so often the case, were wrong, and God was right. Well, continuing on in chapter 2, and, and I, I won't belabor it, but he, he has a second uh, interaction with God 
where he tries yet again to you know impugn Job. Uh, basically, now God allows Satan to afflict Job with a horrific disease, uh, skin disease of, of some kind, and Job suffers you know mightily for it. Uh, so we have some interaction between Satan and people in the Old Testament, although it appears to be very limited, very limited. I mean, like I say, just a number of very, you know, uh, limited accounts. What's not in the Old Testament, but referenced in the New, uh, in Jude chapter 9, evidently there was some kind of dispute between Satan and Michael the archangel over the body of Moses. A fascinating account. That that's all we know, right? So very limited activity in the Old Testament. Coming forward into the New Testament, very active, very active, especially if you want to, you know, add to that the interaction with uh, demons, as Brian was referring to earlier. You know, for example, you know, he's involved uh, directly, personally, in the temptation of Christ. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Somehow in the background, there is some interaction between Satan and someone, I don't know if it would be angels or God, over Peter. Uh, Brian, can you go ahead and uh, read for us uh, Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 35 to get a little bit of fascinating insight? Not much, but it's definitely fascinating insight. Sure. Here it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, Satan demanded to have you so that he can sift you like wheat. You know, tares from wheat or, or chaff from the wheat, right? Uh, to try him, to tempt him, etc. And what's fascinating, Brian, is if uh, our listeners continue on in that same chapter of Luke 22, that happened. The thing I find fascinating is it wasn't Satan appearing to Peter like he did to Jesus, throwing out some questions, trying to you know tempt him directly. It was through people. Uh, Luke 22, verse 36, a servant girl said, Hey, you, you're, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And Peter said, nope. Someone else in the courtyard, uh, verse 58. Nope. Still another one in the courtyard, verse 59. Peter, nope. So, you know, here, it, it's an interesting, it's, it's not a supernatural thing. It's a very natural kind of occurrence that's going on. And once again, Jesus, or uh, Satan is respecting the person's free will, trying to get them to voluntarily uh, deny Christ, just like when tempting Christ himself, trying to get Christ to voluntarily submit. So I think there's some clues there as well. Obviously, you know, through demonic possession, as you mentioned earlier, uh, people were oppressed. Uh, He figures in even some of Jesus' parables. Um, you may remember the parable of the uh, sower, where the birds snatch away the good seed. Uh, so Satan, uh, Luke eight twelve, in some ways, you know, convinces people to ignore God's word. Uh, the tares, uh, the parable of the tares, uh, uh, good seed and the tares sown in the field. Um, 
in some ways, you know, Satan has his own people, his own sons, his own children, so to speak, who follow him, just like Christians follow Christ. So it's almost like if you're not following Jesus, if you're kind of doing your own thing, living like Satan would have you live, <laughs> uh, not doing righteousness, doing evil, etc., uh, you can be called, you know, a son of Satan. Uh, and, you know, as we've mentioned already with demons, uh, certainly New Testament church did have uh, miraculous, uh, miracle working ability. Uh, Mark chapter 16 is, is maybe a good place to go to, you know, starting with verse uh, 15 through verse 18. And of course, this is Jesus talking to his apostles. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And, more to our point, and these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. In my name they will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So, as, as we mentioned earlier under demons, you know, miraculous spiritual gifts. No, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, 14. And in the very middle of that context, you know, Paul writing the Corinthians tells them, hey, this is a temporary kind of thing. So, you know, don't get all wrapped around the axle, so to speak, with, you know, thinking you're better than other Christians in the congregation because you can speak with tongues and they can only prophesy, as an example. So, what do we learn from all of this in the New Testament? Well, at the very least, in New Testament times, yes, some interaction between Satan and people, but more of an indirect, more of a temptation kind of thing. Can we expect uh, any sort of interaction between people and Satan today? Is there any sort of activity Satan has today? Do we need to be concerned about Satan today? At that point, yes. For example, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, where it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Here are some other passages, and notice carefully that Satan can be resisted. Ephesians chapter 1 verse, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. James chapter 4 verse 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And Brian, if I can get you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. So I think in a small nutshell, in terms of activity today, you know, unlike, for example, with Job, where he's given free reign to wreak havoc on people, you know, he seems today to be very limited uh, in his ability to, you know, certainly directly interact with people, uh, very limited in his ability to irresistibly interact with people. And really, it more comes down to temptations that are, you know, that we encounter. So, given all of that and the passing of the supernatural, if Satan is not really able to directly harm us, make us sick, kill us, whatever, if he's not able to do that, if he's constrained, 
do we still need to be concerned? Well, yes. As we mentioned in a few moments ago in these verses, that in some ways Satan kind of works, I'll say indirectly, through things like our lusts. Brian, you did a good job on the previous one. How about First John 2, 15 through 17? Yeah, this is a great passage that really just kind of sums it up right about how the world is today. First John 2, beginning in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now, of course, you could do a, you know, we could have a whole program just talking about lust. Basically, strong longing for what is forbidden. Lust of the flesh, appeal to our fleshly desires, whether we're talking alcohol or drugs, or maybe even comfort food, if it comes to gluttony. You know, scantily clad people, dancing, etc. Lustful kinds of things. Lust of the eyes, you know, something to gratify, you know, things that we see. In a lot of ways, things like uh, materialism, greed, expensive jewelry, fancy clothes, pride of life, the third of the three, you know, more related to pride and boasting and stature in life or popularity, etc. We see that that pattern of three all the way back in Genesis chapter three with Eve, uh, when the woman saw that, number one, the tree was good for food, fleshly desire, physical desire, that it was pleasant to the eyes. There you go, lust of the eyes. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. There you go, pride of life. We see it repeated in the temptation of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, stones be made bread. Again, physical desire. Cast down from the pinnacle of the temple and all the kingdoms of the world being given to uh, Jesus uh, are offered by by Satan. So again, the, the, the famous three. Uh, the other thing I might mention, uh, that in some ways Satan is, indirectly and not only works through these lusts and the pride of life but also works through people indirectly you know we may have friends family co-workers bosses sometimes even other christians that will tempt us <laughs> i use that word tempt us to do things we shouldn't do or, or they may tell us lies to try and convince us to do things we shouldn't do like well this won't hurt you everyone else is doing it it's no big deal you know, just try it this one time. I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 8, of where in the middle of that, it talks about let no one deceive you with empty words. So certainly a lot of people have been led astray by false doctrine, false teachers, false religions, uh, you know, tempted through, you know, friends, co-workers, etc., that in many ways are kind of, you know, Satan's servants, but not in any sort of, you know, supernatural way. So we've covered a lot of ground. I guess I would also mention, Brian, to our listeners, we did have a, a previous podcast, uh, number 37, way back in uh, 2020, November of 2020, uh, entitled The Devil, which if people want to get uh, hear more about that, uh, certainly have additional information at our website. So, bottom line, demons and the devil today, not something to be scared of, but certainly something indirectly with all of the temptations and the way people live around us, the movies, the TV programs, 
the music we listen to, etc. So yes, we need to be careful, but not in any sort of you know supernatural, scary way. If that if that makes sense, Brian. Yeah, very good. And you know, it's I want to go back to one of the passages that you read in Ephesians chapter six, verse eleven, where it said you you had read you know put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You know, verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, that's kind of a deep passage in the sense that I'm not fully sure I understand all the different references in there. But as you pointed out, it certainly is talking about the fact that Satan is active that he is the one that tempts us in a variety of ways. And so therefore we wrestle or fight with these kinds of wicked entities like the devil. And, you know, we, there's this idiom, I guess it would be uh, that, you know, the devil made me do it. Well, he no doubt entices us, but as James 1 points out, you know, in verses, uh, what is it, 13 through 15, where it talks about, you know, that when we're tempted, of course, we can't say we're tempted by God because God can't be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. But notice in verse 14 of James 1, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So you kind of have this combination of the devil enticing us based on him knowing us enough to know what appeals to us. So he has intimate knowledge of us, which is, once again, kind of tough to grasp. But we are as guilty, if you will, because we are being drawn away and enticed by those things that appeal to us. And so I like your section, Jeff, that you went through about examples, right, of different lusts and different ways we can be tempted, because it's just so true. And it's tailored to each one of us and our lusts. So uh, very active today, the devil and uh, something we certainly want to be aware of. Well, and that I think is maybe a, a, just to talk about for, for a second or two. So the trap that people fall into, that, that people might see in some ways this, this Satan or demons, demon possession, uh, and, and as we'll get into in a few moments, uh, you know, spirits and ghosts and haunted houses, and, and they get so wrapped around the, the concept of these supernatural things and they ignore the temptation or the sin that's like right in front of them. You know, the programs they watch on TV or the movies they go see or the friends they associate with or, you know, they go to the bar, or they go to the dances and they think very little of that when in reality they need to be a lot more concerned about that <laughs> and this, you know, overpowering supernatural kind of thing. That is so true. So, Jeff, I mean, it's interesting, you know, we are about, I guess, 45 to 50 minutes now. We've only talked about two sections, right? And and it's just because there's so much information, fortunately, in the Bible about demons, demonic possession, exorcisms, association with Satan, and as you just covered, his interaction with the living, not just then, but also today. And so, yeah, it, it took a lot to go through this, but, you know, we're going to have part two where we're going to talk about some additional elements. Before I get into all that, Jeff, let me give you a chance to provide any final comments you have on, on what we discussed today. Uh, and I certainly appreciate our, our listeners' patience because there, there was a lot of material. And yet at the same time, there's a lot of things were not told, as we said, about the origin of Satan, the origin of demons, etc., but we do know, at least based on, again, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, uh, that uh, a lot of these things are 
now limited, if you will, or were um, restricted to the, uh, the early uh, church. Miraculous ability, which kind of goes hand in hand with supernatural possession, etc. And that, you know, if, if anyone takes away anything from today's podcast, you know, it's kind of the message of, you know, worry less about the direct interaction with these entities and worry more about, you know, their influence on us, our culture, our literature, <laughs> our movies, our entertainment, etc. Because, you know, that that's how we're going to succumb to these evil forces when we yield to our temptations uh, and decide to, you know, do these things instead of following God. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'll add and actually reference back uh, to a verse that you mentioned earlier, and that is that we should be thankful that God has given us the ability to resist temptation from Satan, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? He's always going to give us the ability to escape it. He's never going to allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. And so we can't say the devil made us do it. And we can be grateful to God that, you know what? He's given us a way to have power over Satan, which is pretty amazing, you know, if you think about it. Well, and especially amazing, for example, as we said earlier in the uh, case of Job, where if Satan was unconstrained, you can just see the kind of, you know, literal havoc, right, that he could wreak <laughs> on us all uh, if, he, if he only had the chance. Right. And obviously, I think that points out that, no, he does not have that chance. God's not going to give him that chance, uh, that he is constrained, restrained, pretty much to indirectly, you know, tempting us to, you know, deny God uh, and, or, quote unquote, follow Satan in when we go following our own uh, lusts and desires and, and do what we want to in this life. Yeah, great point. So we invite you to join us for part two, where we're going to be talking about spirits, mediums, ghosts, and hauntings. To start out with, uh, you know, certainly there's a lot of varying beliefs about that. We're also going to touch on, you know, where the spirit goes after death. What does the Bible tell us? And then we're going to take a look at some questions that have been submitted on what we've covered today and what we'll cover next week. So uh, as we always say, you know, please examine what we have presented, consider it, study it, certainly make application and be careful not to believe things that can't be proven through the scriptures. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.